HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm your host, Damon Bolte, and in the studio today we have the lovely Jordana Rothman. It's been about a year or so since the last time you were here, I and think so. uh, and uh, it's great to have you back. I know you've been super busy. You've been doing a lot of a lot more freelance writing than you had in the past, and you've just. Uh, finished uh helping to write the the new alex dupac book that's right yeah i just finished it last week actually so it should be out um fall 2015 with clarkson potter nice. very exciting very cool yeah so what do you do to celebrate <laughs> i mean um, like well I, you've got two two <laughs> levels of celebration right well so they'll right i mean i'll celebrate even more when it happens when it actually comes out next year of course but it was a big moment to finish it you know it was a really i, I come from the world of weekly magazines and so i'm so used to kind of you know coming up with a story idea and executing it quickly and you know doing my research and getting it out there and then it lives and it dies and that's it but unpacking a bigger story over the course of really a year or longer is a totally different kind of challenge. And so it takes something out of you. I mean, it's deeply rewarding, but it's a, it's a very intense um, paradigm shift. So when I finished, um, I was alone. I was home alone and there was like no one there to jump around with me and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, oh my God, I have like the first time in like two years, like I have nowhere to be. I don't, I don't know what to do. And so I just went into the city and ate tacos <laughs> with <laughs> with Karen Stanley and the book is about tacos, so it was appropriate. Oh, nice! Yeah, very cool. I, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I do I do some writing too, and I every time I get an assignment, it's always like the same thing. It's like super like hit it and quit it, and then it's gone. Yeah. So like I I don't know I've I've toyed with the idea of writing a book, and I, I don't 
it, it really makes me nervous because I would it would take me a really long time to be like comfortable with it, you know? Totally. I, I mean, in a way, you never get comfortable with it. Right. I mean, it takes, you know, it's not like when you sort of write a story, you know, for the web and you do your research and you do the best job to make sure that it's as accurate as possible and as honest as possible. But, you know, if you misspell something, you know, you can get back in there and change it. Right. But this is, you know, you're committing to it. It's more than just it lives forever. It's a manifesto in many ways. And, and it's not just, it's not my story. You know, I, I helped tell Alex Stupak's story. And so it was a lot of pressure, but it was, it, it's such a, it's such a pleasure to really dig into something that deep dive and really feel like, you know, it. it's, and, and know that it will always be a part of you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot about tacos. I was going to say <laughs> that, like, I'm pretty jealous about that assignment. You know, that's uh yeah. Hang out and, and learn about tacos, man. That's, that's like a dream come true. You got the dream job. It was pretty amazing. I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. 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 Awesome. I, um, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, writing for the web and like being able to, uh, go back and correct things like, oh man, I, I get the worst end of it because no one knows how to spell my name. So like every time there's an article written about me, I always have to like email someone to be like, guys, like the, the last one that actually, they, they misspelled my last name, which is. Not the easiest to remember how to spell uh, or to even know how to spell or pronounce for that matter. But uh, at one point they, they called me Damien oh, no. <laughs> in the article and it was like, oh, God. Oh, guys. that's painful. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, it's better than, uh, it's better than, it's it's a good thing it wasn't in the book, you know, in print. Exactly. And, you know, and it was like something that could be saved. I mean, everyone that you talk to who does a book, everyone's like, there is some, you miss something. You just miss something. I yeah. mean, a type, like even it's just a typo, whatever. You miss something, and then you don't, and you see it like when you get the actual hardcover book in your hands. You're like, oh, I misspelled my own name on the cover, or like something <laughs> like that. You know, it's just those things happen, and you know, it's just part of the process. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> the process. I mean, like you, you had been writing for a long time for a time out in New York and a bunch of other publications, like. It, with the process of of writing, you were doing a lot of stuff locally, and yeah. and uh, what's your process with like figuring out what to write about and like where to go for it, and like you know like because to me it's it's always like I said I always get like assigned something and it's like I got to do this now and it's just like boom I never get the I I never get to like necessarily come up the with ideation the, yeah right. you know I mean. It, different processes for different kinds of stories. Um, you know, when I was at Time Out New York, I was really doing very clear-cut service journalism and super hyper-local New York City, obviously. So, you know, those cocktail stories will say, I mean, all the stories in general, but for the purposes of Speakeasy Radio, um, you know, I would say, well, I've noticed such and such thing at a few bars, and I wonder if I see it here, if it's happening other places. And you also want to think about, like, is it is it useful? Is it cool? You know, is, will people get excited about it? And so, you know, sometimes it's like you're doing a trend story about some spirit that's sort of ascendant at that time. Like I remember when Maya well opened, we just wanted to talk about tequila and it was, you know, that was just because it was sort of a misunderstood spirit and it was a chance to, explore something that didn't have a lot of cultural clout at the time in the craft cocktail community in New York City. So stories like that sort of occur to you because you're out all the time. People talk to you about things. You see things on a menu that make you sort of do a double take and think, oh, that's interesting, or I haven't seen that before, or I haven't heard of that. What is that? And, you know, you pay attention to things like, I remember um, Eric Seed, the wonderful importer from House Alpens, when he brought um, Vermouth de Torino 
mm-hmm. into New York City. I'd never tasted it before. I didn't know about it. I didn't know it's a it has a designation. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the first time I tasted it was really exciting. And then you start to see it kind of slowly make its way through the bars and people get their hands on it and people start playing with it. And so maybe this is a good time to do a story about it. And so you kind of come up with the idea and you get in touch with your contacts and you say, who's seen this where? And you go out and you taste it. And I think that's really important for service journalism, for that style of journalism. You have to taste it. I mean, you have to go and experience it. It's not enough to just say this exists. I mean, if your readers are going to trust you, which I'd like to think that they did at timeout, um, it's not enough that it exists. It needs to be good. It needs to be worth the sort of adventure and the experience and the money of going out and seeking it out. And so from there, you know, you have the experience, you bring it home, you do your reporting and you write about it. So yeah, I totally get it. It's like, Oh man, everyone's making blue drinks. All of a sudden blue drinks are cool again, except, Mm -hmm. you know, they look cool, but you know, how many of them actually taste good? Well, totally. And it's really interesting to see how, so now I'm doing a lot less of that sort of service style journalism and more, um, sort of bigger conversation stories at this point. I'm just, it's just a different style of writing. I sort of notice things and talk about, um, you know, what this means and how, and I have a more sort of national scope now. So I'm kind of exploring how things sort of play out on the national scale. And it's very interesting to see where things start and where they end and what happens along the way. I mean, I think about barrel aged cocktails, I think is one of the biggest um, trends that sort of trickled down through all of the cosmopolitan cities, starting with really Portland and Jeffrey Morgenthaler at Clyde Common. And then you suddenly there's a, you know, seminar about it, it tells the cocktail and then, you know, it starts happening in other cities and people start making um, sort, sort of pushing it too far. And you have these sort of gross over woody drinks that just yeah they're barrel right. aged but like what have you done for it congratulations you've destroyed the spirit you know right, right. and then you know you start seeing it and in three years from now we're gonna be able to get like a barrel aged negroni in a fucking airport you know i mean that's right. how it happens <laughs> it trickles down you know it's also funny too like on the on the barrel aged thing i'm not i'm actually personally not a fan of barrel aged cocktails I never, mm-hmm. I never really have been i mean i like the idea of bottle conditioning more than and barrel aging you know what i mean why just because the the flavors integrate more and you're you it's interesting to see like a freshly made negroni versus a bottle conditioned one versus a barrel aged one what does that mean to you, bottle conditioning i mean ultimately For you're a cocktail what? You're it just lets the it's essentially letting all the spirits kind of age together and become one mm-hmm. Cohesive. <laughs> you've, you've been a burning man you know what i'm talking about when yeah. i say becoming totally one. <laughs> totally um, right up my alley yeah um yeah but it's so funny i mean i've had the bottle conditioning. I didn't know that we had a word for it yet, but I like that. Um, sometimes it's just like you've made me an old cocktail or this is yeah. like, this has become sort of oxygenated and, and a little bit rancid, frankly, <laughs> like sometimes yeah. happens. I mean, I think that, I think that, you know, experimenting with this stuff is so good and so valuable, but I also think that it, it takes research to do it Right. It yeah. takes experimentation to do it right. It takes knowledge to do it right. And sometimes it takes like molecular scientific knowledge. Sometimes it takes just like the the kind of um, rigor that, you know, you do something and you taste it once. It's not done yet. Keep playing with it. Right. You know, so. Yeah. And also, you know, it's it's when when the when that started happening, when we started seeing like the trend of uh, of barrel aging cocktails. No one could get a barrel all of a sudden, you know, like, right. you know, uh, companies like Tuttletown right. and the little uh, ones. yeah, the little ones mm-hmm. who have like the small barrels who sell them after they use them, you know, it's like all of a sudden they've got like huge wait lists. So you couldn't even get one. And yeah. that, that's really annoying, you know, too, because like if, if you're reading about this, 
this process and you know if you're from like oklahoma and all of a sudden you find out about barrel aging cocktails and then you go to try and figure out where to get a barrel and then you can't get one you're like damn man why am i like why is it what i hear about everything so late you know (laughs) right totally or i mean just in general like those things i think in general you know, it speaks to like a larger thing that always strikes me um, about when I'm sort of in other cities and checking out their bar programs and seeing things that I've seen a few years ago, maybe in New York or, you know, Portland or San Francisco. And I think, well, you know, it's gotten here and this is good or it's gotten here and this it's sort of been lost in translation. I mean, I think about that a lot. You know, there's there's a responsibility also to the consumer. Like I have some triggers, let's say, around, um, you know, sort of the like hipster whiskeys that are not really, they're just sort of, you know, bottled and mixed and whatever, but they're LDI, you know, made in Indiana. But like the consumer right. thinks that they're having something that's been, you know, distilled and bottled in whatever. Right. Brooklyn, for example. Sure. Um, and I, I think that there is a real lack of um, consumer education around that. And so everybody thinks that they're sort of having one thing, but there's a lot of like labeling noise and they're kind of like taking bottled advantage. in bottled in, uh, you know, Vermont when it's made exactly in Canada, like or kind of made thing. in Canada or made in, you know, some gigantic factory in uh, yeah. Indiana right. or whatever. But yeah, you know, I just, I had a, uh, I had a, a leather aged cocktail in DC Ooh. a couple of weeks ago. What did that taste like? It tasted like, I don't know. It wasn't my favorite cocktail, but it so, was interesting. So it was like, it was really cool. It was at bar mini and okay. I, and I, and all the drinks were really great there. And, uh, but I had like probably seven different cocktails there and it was my least favorite out of all of them, but it was still really cool. But I think I, at that point I probably had palate fatigue also. <laughs> like how late was it in the evening? It was, in it the was, morning. it was seven cocktails deep there and yeah. that was our last stop. Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, I would like to see if we're doing leather age cocktails now, I'd like sort of to see the entire array. Like I'd like, you know, the sort of you know, the, the gentleman's belt age cocktail, but it also like the sort of BDSM, yeah. you know, <laughs> ball gag strap yeah, aged totally. cocktail such that I can, you know, use ball this. gag aged cocktails. Exactly. I That's, want, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so make that happen for me, America. Why is it so briny? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, there's, there's, you know, yeah, I thought the the leather age thing was cool. It was in an old like a bota, you know, like oh, wine, oh right. wine yeah, sure. Thing. So that was cool. It was actually really cool. You know, the botas. So the bota bags are Spanish, right? They're mm-hmm. the the leather wine sacks. And I, um, one of my very early stories at Time Out was about um, learning to drink from a Peron, which is basically a mm-hmm. glass evolution of the bota bag, and it's sort of this Catalonian drinking vessel with it looks like a water can. It has a spout on the end of it and I'd never seen one before and I thought they were cool and there was a place I found out I was doing it and I did this sort of like step-by-step guide to learning how to drink from it without like getting a facial basically um, and time out ironically perhaps still I don't know there are several prisons that have subscriptions to time out and I used to get fan mail from the prisons <laughs> and I got an unbelievable amount of fan mail for my wine facial Peron drinking story fun fact <laughs> it was pretty um it's a big moment in my career yeah I, you yeah. know i think that back when we used to have uh frankie's in the east village uh frankie 17 and then the last six months or so that we had the lease there before we moved to the west village we 
kind of did our own pop-up, a Spanish pop-up called Francesca. And uh, we we had porons and we were we were getting kind of crazy because we knew we were about to be finished uh, with that lease before we moved. And we just did a lot of awesome Spanish food and pichos and, and like charcuterie and all this stuff. It was awesome. And uh, one of the, I just remember everyone doing like laybacks of porons. And then I think the porons, and I started seeing them in other places. And I think it really inspired a whole like new trend of doing laybacks at the bar. Totally. The, People the, the, are doing the, laybacks everywhere now. The like Smirnoff layback is just an evolution of like the ancient Spanish bota bag. Yeah, that's all I it mean, is. That's what we Americans do to beautiful things. <laughs> we turn it into Smirnoff ice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, I know people are putting, like, all kinds of other stuff like whiskey and Fernet and the porons and just going crazy. Sometimes being, like, up on the balcony and doing, like, a two-story poron in people's faces. Yeah. I've seen people pull it off without a drop, too. Oh, I've gotten really good at it, actually. (laughs) The key is to – is continuous swallowing. On that note, we're going to take a break. (laughs) And we'll be back in just a moment with Jordana Rothman. Today's break song is the Kami Mami Instrumental by Nair. This is the Speakeasy. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Speakeasy. And in the studio today, we have the lovely Jordana Rothman. And we were just talking about some really gnarly stuff. About <laughs> Sorry, guys. Getting drinks all over your face. No. Can't be <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, you know, like you're saying that you're doing stuff on a more like national level now. Mm-hmm. What are some of the places you've been to lately that you like just like? Yeah. Um, well, I was in San Francisco recently, and I, that is such a good drinking town. Yeah, I they, mean, they do it right. They, It's so good. I mean, and there's such a great variety of what's going on there. But I think the two places that really stand out to me are Trick Dog um, and also Bar Agricole. And they're so different. Like, I like mm-hmm. them for such different reasons. I mean, Trick Dog is just so fun. And they do these really cool things with these, like, they change their menus, the menus all the time. But they're these, like, objet d'art. I mean, like, one of the ones was, like, a Zodiac menu. Right. And they did, like, a Pantone menu. And that's a place where, like, you read the drinks and they're just, like, so appetizing and interesting. And you want to taste everything. And it's, like, the experience where you, like, go with a bunch of people and everyone's, like, passing their drinks around because you want to taste everything. And it's just... They're smart, they're restrained, they're fun, they're delicious, they're unexpected, like, and the whole experience reads that way, and it's just, it's just awesome. I mean, like, I could, I can't say enough good things about that place. And then Bar Agricole is so different. Like, Bar Agricole, I think, is really influential for other reasons. Like, they 
I feel like every single bottle behind the bar represents not just a beautiful spirit, but also a relationship. Like the people who do the work there, like they build these relationships in the same way that a chef takes pride in building a relationship with a farmer or another kind of producer. Like the bartenders there truly know the people that are making their spirits and they do the research and the ditch digging to make sure that they abide by a set of ideals that that match theirs and I think that's really noble and I think that in the next few years we'll start to see other places that actually like take on that responsibility that social responsibility behind the bar um in the same way that that they do at bar agricole I think that's so exciting I I I love that place really cool very cool yeah I you know I go those are two of my favorites. I love ABV too. Oh like yeah, Ryan Fitzgerald's an awesome dude. Yeah, and uh, I like I really like Trick Dogs Back Bar because they have these like this multi depth like three deep kind of like sliding shelves and so like the whole back bar is modular and it's really it's really interesting. Yeah, it feels like a library, like the yeah. Beauty and the Beast library, where she like goes there and she's like swinging on the ladder. It's really fun. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and actually, there's a few, and Hardwater too, actually, in San Francisco, the Charles Fawn place. Oh, yeah. I didn't get to go there last time. Yeah, they have a really amazing selection of whiskeys. And it's just, it's just a great drinking town, you know? Like, it's not, I, I like that the places that I like there, I feel like have really distinctive personalities. And I think that as cities mature into themselves, that's really important. Like, you, a great, a great drinking town has a place for classic cocktails. It has, you know, a place for sort of, you know, tiki or otherwise sort of kooky, playful cocktails. It has, you know, really creative, inventive, personal, personal feeling cocktails. It has all of that, you know, because that's what that, that makes a holistic personality. You know, that's what it means to like be in a town. It's like a golden age of drinking. You can go to all these different places and have all these different experiences and it's beautiful. You know, it's rich. Yeah. yeah. What about like, have you been to LA lately? Not recently. I mean, I love the varnish, but not recently yeah. enough. It's to... been a long time for me too. Yeah. What but do I you like just, there? I was wondering. Well, I haven't been there in like a few years, but I was just wondering how like how much it has changed since like Uber is like really like changing the way that people are like drinking there. You know, and it's like totally. I didn't know if you had any experience with that because it used to be like really sucky to like drink in LA because you have to drive. You would have to drive yeah. everywhere. I mean, I think in general, the, the, I think the Uber effect probably, I mean, particularly for LA, like a driving city like LA, but I think in a lot of places it's like really changed how people go out. I mean, you know, uh, actually there is that whole thing recently about Uber making some donation to mothers against drunk driving. There was like a, no, you don't. Okay. I I was hoping you'd pick up the uh, missing pieces from my knowledge on that one, but we'll skip it. But, um, (laughs) But yeah, I've, I I don't know. I mean, I, I think that all of these things play into how people use the bars in a city. And it's great to ha- to be able to kind of have the responsibility taken off of your hands in terms of yeah. who's going to abstain and who's going to, you know, I mean, here in New York, we just don't really think about that that much, but it's a huge. Yeah. I mean, like I think about like towns where people are like really like into cars, you know, like mm-hmm. places like LA and places like, like, like Miami. I was in Miami and December and we just relied on Uber and like, you know, of course like taxis and Uber altogether. But like Miami to me has always been like a city where it's like, everyone's trying to like drive like around on South beach showing off their rides and blasting their music. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually just in Miami drinking in Miami and I have to say like, it took me a minute to find a good drink. I mean, there's a few places there I was really excited to go to. Um, the Broken Shaker being one of them. I think the the menu of Broken Shaker reads beautifully, like really exciting ideas on paper. Like I had, as you know, I 
was just running the taco book. And so there was a Al Pastor taco inspired cocktail on the menu of Broken Shaker. And I was like psyched, like it had pineapple and I think it had like a chorizo infused um, mezcal, maybe the um, Del Maguey, mm-hmm. the one with the chorizo. Oh, actually, no, the that's the Jamon Serrano. So I had something with chorizo. And so it was really exciting and cool. I didn't like the base spirits. Like there was a lot of stuff that just didn't like Bombay was like their well gin. I didn't like that. I mean, it's like when you build a house, the foundation needs